Good morning, everyone. Hello. Tanaistaling for the Ethiopians in the audience. Uh, welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, we're so glad that you're here in person or online. My name is Kimberly Flowers, and uh, for the last four years, I've been directing our global food security work. Uh, today is, um, of course, a conversation about agriculture transformation in Ethiopia, but it's also launching a new report that was written by Christian Mann and Gatachi Daruba. And we're so grateful to their work um, on this report, um, and I hope that you um, enjoy reading it and hope that we can have a fruitful discussion about it today. I'm excited about this report and today's event for, for two main reasons. Uh, the first one is just that if anyone knows me, you know that I used to live in Ethiopia, so Ethiopia has a really big place in my heart. Um, a decade ago, I lived in Ethiopia for three years where I was working for USAID as a development outreach and communications officer. And my job at the time was to cover the entire portfolio, so I didn't work just in agriculture. But when I was there, it, was, um, it always struck me as this really illogical imbalance that in a country with such a huge population whose backbone in, in their economy is agriculture, that the USAID portfolio was so skewed more towards food aid or humanitarian assistance versus long-term agricultural development. Of course, that balance has shifted. I'm sure Beth Dunford, when she's on the panel, will talk similarly about her experience. Um, but it's nice that Ethiopia has since become such a huge partner of the US government in terms of our focus, uh, or the US government's focus on agricultural development and kind of tackling those root causes. Another reason that I'm most excited about today's report and event is because to me it centers all around the role of governance. Um, of course, one of the criteria for um, a Feed the Future target country is around country ownership. And, and now under USAID Administrator Green, we have the journey to self-reliance. But also, it's, for the last four years at CSIS, a lot of the work that we've done, it always tends to come back to either strong or weak governance, whether we're talking about driving factors um, you know, for severe food insecurity, whether you're talking about education or women's empowerment, econo economic prosperity, a lot of it comes back to that country commitment. And that's where Ethiopia has such a positive development story. A lot of people, t you know, if, you, if you're in the food security space, you hear a lot of talk about the PSMP or the social safety net and how that's a great model to follow. Well, I also think, of course, the ATA, the Agriculture Transformation Agency, is another model that Ethiopia has set up and shows the country commitment um, there that they understand the importance of agriculture transformation. A huge part of that success is very much due to the leadership of Khalid Bamba. Um, for some time now, I mentioned to this to him this morning, for years I've been wanting to get Khalid to come here. <laughs> he's hard to reach because he's very busy and it's a long way to come for a short time. The reason I've wanted him to come is because I've been so fascinated by governance and that country commitment part and I wanted to showcase okay how is US leadership you know policy and and efforts and food security what does that really look like on the ground from a country leader perspective and how can we bring in the best to showcase that and talk about that and as I reached out to people over the years every time I said well who's the right person to come it always came back to well Khalid Bamba. So I am really excited that I get to introduce a man um, who is such a visionary leader in this space. Um, he's been the head of the Agriculture Transformation Agency for nearly eight years, so almost since its inception. And he's responsible for the agency's programming and operations across the country. 
He brings a wealth of experience, including uh, being a senior program officer with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where he managed grants to strengthen the human and um, institutional capacity of the agriculture sector in Africa. He has held a lot of senior and, and executive positions throughout his career, um, including that started at J.P. Morgan, which I think is quite interesting and different than many of our past. He spent a decade at his, the start of his career at J.P. Morgan working on corporate finance and sovereign debt issues. Um, um, throughout our project on this, Khalid and his staff have been incredibly helpful and accessible to our team, both in the field and afterwards, and we're really grateful because we needed that kind of partnership to, to do a case study and a report like this. So I'm very happy to welcome you to CSIS, and without further ado, I'll turn it over to Khalid for his opening remarks. Thank you. Good morning. Um, thank you, Kimberly, for those uh, kind introductory uh, remarks. Um, I'll try to keep this relatively short, but cover a, a, lo a lot of ground. I must admit that when I uh, first got the call from Kimberly and, uh, and Christian to do this case study on the ATA, I was, I was a little bit nervous. I wasn't sure what to expect, and I, I thought to myself, uh, what's going to come out of this? Are they going to be fair? Are they going to be uh, objective? But then I thought to myself, look, we are a learning organization. And at the end of the day, whatever feedback that we get, we can either incorporate if it makes sense, or we can say, well, that doesn't make much sense. And, and I must say, having read the report, that it is fair, it is balanced. There is a, a lot of very helpful information for the ATA ourselves, as well as I hope for, for many of you. But what I'd like to do today is maybe just cover four broad areas. And uh, you'll see that all four of them are relatively uh, meaty, so I'll try to go through it fairly quickly. What I'll try to do is just give you a sense of what is the ATA's business model? H how do we actually work? Uh, what do I think are our key achievements? Um, what does uh, Dr. Abi's new reforms in Ethiopia, the new prime minister, uh, what does it mean for the ATA and the agricultural sector? Because I suspect that that's uh, kind of the elephant in the room type of question many people want to hear about. And then finally, uh, what are the lessons for other countries that might be interested in, uh, in replicating this model? Um, so, as I said, these are kind of big, chunky pieces, and I'll try to go through them relatively quickly, but hopefully they'll seed some questions, some, some interest for further, further conversation. So, for those of you that know the ATA, there's probably two phrases that usually stand out, and one is the phrase kind of a catalyst for transformational change, and the other one is address systemic issues. If you look at the ATA's regulation, it highlights four specific mandate areas for the organization, uh, which are develop studies, support implementation, implement projects, and then coordinate and integrate. Now, you know, for me, coming from the private sector, as, as Kimberly mentioned, I was a little bit worried about these because they're vague, they're very broad. I mean, what, what do they mean? How, what do we do with this? They're just a kind of a series of activities. So I was, again, quite nervous, but then the entrepreneurial side of me took over and said, actually, this is an opportunity. It actually helps you shape your business plan to achieve whatever it is that you want to do. Because if you're straight-jacketed into you must do X, Y, or Z, then all of a sudden you're limited in terms of how you implement it. So the first thing that we did was really think about what is it that we want to achieve? And for that, we looked at the government strategy. Because ATA is a government organization, and as a result, we don't have our own individual high-level objectives. 
our objectives or the government's objectives. And in that regard, the government of Ethiopia consistently throughout history has had three main objectives, but more so over the past couple of years. The first is to improve the livelihoods of its smallholder farmers, of which there are about 17 million. And Ethiopia is a little bit unique in that smallholder farmers account for nearly 95% of the agricultural production in the country. So those that have less than a hectare of land produce a disproportionate amount of the agricultural production. So our first objective, and the objective of the government, is we need to improve their livelihoods. The second one, and this is going to be fairly obvious to most people, is that we need to make sure Ethiopia is food secure. Right? At a national level, we need to make sure that Ethiopia produces enough food to feed its people. And then that national level has to cascade all the way down to the community level. And then lastly, and this is more of a, a newer um, objective over the past 10 years, is to ensure that the agricultural sector acts as an engine for overall uh, economic growth, which means really transforming our, our smallholder farmers from subsistence-based production to one that's much more market and commercial oriented. So those are the three kind of high-level big objectives that we started with. But even then, we said, OK, that's an objective. Again, what is our business plan? How do we actually achieve this, given our four mandate areas and those two phrases I mentioned earlier? So over time, what we worked on is developing a bipillar, uh, two-pillar um, business model and then operationalizing our four mandate areas around them. So the two pillars of our business model, one looks systemically across the whole country, and the other looks very geographically at specific strategic commodities and specific geographies. So at the kind of macro level, we have what's called the transformation agenda. And that transformation agenda thinks of agriculture from a system perspective, and actually, from a system of systems perspective, right? And says, what are the structural bottlenecks there? Because agriculture, people talk about as a system, but it's actually a series of different systems. So there's the seed system and research system and extension system. And each of these has to be fixed or has to be working effectively. But working effectively by themselves is insufficient. They also have to be integrated so that they feed off one another. So when we thought about this, we said, okay, let's first figure out what are the most critical systems, and then what are the most important bottlenecks that we've got to solve within each one of these systems. So under the leadership of the Ministry of Agriculture, we brought together all of the different stakeholders in the country and said, all right, let's figure out in each system the two or three most important deliverables. No more than three. Three big things that we've got to get done. And within each one of those three things, what are three to five specific interventions? No more than five. Of course, some people push that to seven. But still, I mean, it was really about prioritizing and limiting the things that we focus on. So at the end, what we had was 49 specific deliverables and upwards of about 190 interventions of subdeliverables. Over time, again, they've been narrowed down. And we have now 137 that are active that we work on. So this is what we call the transformation agenda. And it covers the entire country. And it's really the kind of the, the critical systemic bottlenecks that we're trying to unlock. So that's part one of our business model. And the Ministry of Agriculture leads it. And as I'll explain in a moment, we support it through our four mandate areas. The other is, how do we actually take these high-level systemic solutions 
and bring them down to the ground for specific farmers and physically integrate them for the farmers themselves. So there again, we work with the ministry and said, all right, let's identify the most important strategic commodities for Ethiopia from a perspective of what will reach the most farmers, what will create national food security, and what are the most important commodities that will help us transform the economy as a whole to become a more modern economy. And we identified 10 major commodities. Then we said, okay, for these 10 major commodities, where do we have a comparative advantage to produce them? Agroecology, soil, um, uh, even market linkages and logistics. Because you might have a fantastic place to produce wheat, but if you can't get that wheat to the market, what's the point? So we looked at all of these factors and identified 300 wadadas or districts. And then said, okay, let's work with each and every one of these specific districts, one by one, and come up with annual and five-year plans. And this took two years. But for 300 waredas now, we have an implementation plan that the head of that wareda has signed KPIs with the regional government and said, this is what I'm going to do. And the regional government and ATA on our side has said, okay, and here's how we're going to support you. This is a major project that we as ATA are leading, but many, many different partners are implementing the different components. So these are the two parts of our business plan. One that is systemic and goes across the country and tries to help farmers all across the country. And the other that is geographic that integrates solutions in specific locations for specific commodities to really prove that model. And many would look at that as a, as a value chain approach, but it's a little bit more complex than a value chain approach because we try to play what's essentially a system integrator role, where we're integrating many different partners rather than implementing every single thing. So those are the kind of two business models that we, we've used or we, that we continue to use. Now in terms of what is, how, how do we actually use are four mandate areas to support this business model. And I think this is really where the innovation uh, that is the ATA has, uh, has um, been impactful. So as I mentioned, we have four different mandate areas. The first one is one that required us to do studies. That's all the regulation says. Do studies to identify bottlenecks. But exactly how do you do that? Well, you know, are we a research organization? What exactly are we? And what we landed on was a model that actually leveraged the approach that international management consulting firms use. And we have an internal team within the ATA that's modeled after the McKinsey and Baines of the world that's 50 people strong. The head of the team, the four principals underneath that person, and nine out of the 12 case team leaders all come from strategy consulting firms or operational management consulting firms. The lower level analysts are all hired from Ethiopian universities. And over time, these local hires are taking over more senior positions. And, in, and by 2020, all of the levels below the principal and the head of the team will be local. So in 18 months, we'll have all local staff below the top two tiers. And by 2023, we expect the entire team to be local, maybe except for the, the top of the team all uh, grown from within the organization. And this team essentially produces the same kind of outputs that you'd expect from any international management consulting firm, but focused exclusively on Ethiopian agriculture 
and focused exclusively on those two business models that I mentioned earlier. The second part of our model is supporting implementation. Again, this is a very vague term. What does supporting implementation mean? How do you do that? Where do you do that? And initially, we had a team of experts, technical experts based at the ATA, that would essentially help the ministry on anything and everything that they asked for. Now, that's not very efficient at the end of the day because you're kind of all over the place and trying to support everything. Demand-based as it might be, the impact is kind of distributed and you're not really seeing it. So instead what we've done, and over the last three years has proven incredibly uh, impactful, is we've placed a delivery unit, a team of 25 experts sitting in the Ministry of Agriculture itself using a model that actually um, the Tony Blair Institute, I think, is, is, is using around Africa to support the implementation of the transformation agenda. So they don't work on supporting anything and everything. It's those 49 deliverables and 137 interventions that I mentioned earlier that they support the Ministry of Agriculture to implement. And they've got your regular kind of delivery unit functions of problem solving, of tracking and reporting. So that's the second leg of our model. The third one, which is implementing projects, is a relatively new one. We actually, not relatively new, but we didn't have that as part of our initial mandate. But around 2016, the prime minister at the time said, I'm not seeing change fast enough. Things aren't getting done. ATA, let's see what you guys can do. Do a few projects. And the first project that we did was quite successful. And he said, OK, now this is officially part of your mandate. I want you to do projects. And at the moment, we have 25 different projects that we're running. And some of them are national projects, like a digital soil map that we're doing for the entire country. And these projects have proven quite successful, but the challenge has always been one of how do we ensure that we're not duplicating other people's work? How do we ensure that people don't feel like we are crowding them out, be it the public or private sector? So we, we tend to be incredibly careful about only taking on projects that don't have an owner or that are, in, or that are extremely delayed and, need, or, and urgent to get done as quickly as possible. And whenever we implement a project, we always identify who is the long-term owner of this project before we start. Rather than thinking about it at the end of the process and say, who do we hand over to, we actually identify that long-term owner at the beginning and have them part of the implementation process so that we can build their capacity and hand over during the implementation. So when we step back, just like a scaffolding in a building, that building is actually standing. So it's not just a hollow structure that we're implementing, but rather we're building a building. So that's the uh, third part of our, our uh, kind of mandate area and how it works. And then lastly, it's a question of the, it's a mandate area around uh, coordination and integration. Again, a very vague and, and narrow, I mean vague and broad term that could be interpret, interpreted in so many different ways. And for us, that integration and coordination has had two levels. The first level is within the projects that we run themselves. As I mentioned, every project is integrated during implementation with the long-term owner. But the other one that's actually, I think, going to be much more impactful is the way that we do coordination integration in our second business model pillar, which is the agricultural commercialization cluster. <clears throat> that work that we're doing that integrates the projects on the ground is the way that we do integration and coordination. And if you look at kind of major programs all around the world, like 
the construction of a building or the construction of a dam or a bridge, you typically have a system integrator, somebody that's actually doing the integration. And that's what we want to do as we go forward, is that system integration role rather than the project implementation role. We want to cede the project implementation to others, please. Others, implement, private sector, implement. Let us do the coordination, let us do the strategic thinking around how that implementation of projects gets integrated into a much bigger impact. So those are our business, that's our business model and how we work. Now, what are the main kind of outputs or the things that, you know, some, often people ask me, what are you most proud of at the ATA? And I think there's a few things that, that I'm most proud that, to say that we've done. The first is the fact that we've actually delivered. Right? We've actually gotten stuff done. And very early on, that was our mantra. Just get stuff done. Just get it done. Doesn't matter how, just get it done. So if you look at our projects, most of them have been successful. There are some that are not. And we've used those as opportunities to learn. But things like the digital soil map, where we've mapped the soil fertility of the entire country, has changed the fertilizer recommendations for farmers. Things like the 8028 farmer hotline has four million registered farmers that are calling in and getting extension information. So each of those projects, I think, have delivered something that have improved the agricultural sector. Now there's also macro level improvements in agriculture that we can point to. I think it would be incorrect and disingenuous of me to say that ATA has done that. We have not done that. There are many, many partners that have contributed to the big changes that happened, have happened in Ethiopian agriculture over the past 10 years. I hope that we can say we've contributed. I hope that we, say, we can say that some of the things that we've done have done their part in making those changes. So that's the one thing that I would say is most important that I'm proud that we've done. The second is that we've actually implemented at scale. There aren't many organizations that are eight years old that can say that they've implemented projects that have reached five, 10, you know, eight million farmers. But a number of our projects have actually gone to scale. And that is something that I think we can be proud of because it's not easy to implement projects at scale. And I think there's a lot of learning that could probably um, be taken from other organizations, both in Ethiopia and across the world in terms of how we've, um, how we've gotten to scale. The third, I would say, is we've introduced a series of interesting and important new concepts and ideas. Even the concept of the transformation agenda, the focus on systemic issues, that wasn't really part of the narrative eight to 10 years ago when the ATA first began. Everybody was running around trying to solve today's problem. But I think with the introduction of the ATA, people are saying, okay, we do have to solve the problems that exist today, but we also have to think about the structural issues in the agricultural sector. So I'm proud that we've begun that discussion and helped in doing the work around identifying what are the most important structural bottlenecks. Now, let me move to the changes that are happening in Ethiopia at the moment and what do they mean for the agriculture sector as well as ATA. 
And in that regard, I think all of you are, uh, I mean, I think most of you know about the changes that Dr. Abi, over the past year, has brought about in Ethiopia. I think for most of us Ethiopians, we could not have imagined the depth and the speed at which those changes have come about. And I think across the board, people in Ethiopia are excited about that. And we at ATA are no different. I think these changes are positive changes for the country as a whole, both for today and for the future. At the same time, I think what's lost is that since most of these changes are seen at the political and the social level, the impact that they're going to have on the agricultural sector is sometimes lost. But I would actually argue that their impact, the impact of these reforms that Dr. Abi is bringing about, are going to be as impactful as in agriculture as they are in other parts of the economy and the society. And I'd point to three specific reasons why. The first is the space that's being opened up for the private sector. I mean, for too long, Ethiopia has been dominated by the public sector. If you look in any part of the agricultural system, the public sector plays a major role. And while that might have been appropriate at some point in the development process, that is no longer going to get us to where we need to go. We need a vibrant private sector. And the space that Dr. Abi has opened up with these reforms, I believe are going to create that kind of opportunity for the private sector to play an even bigger role. The second is an issue of inclusiveness. And you know, again, most of you will know that in Dr. Abi's cabinet, there's an equal balance of men and women. That's just kind of the icing or the, the top of the change that's happening. This issue of inclusiveness is related to both making sure that women have an opportunity to contribute fully in agriculture as well as other parts of the economy, but also there are other marginalized groups that I think these changes are aiming to address. And two of them in particular are most important for Ethiopia. The first is youth. Ethiopia, like most of Africa, has a, an, a, a very large youth population that is thinking, okay, where do I go? Where do I work? And unless we deal with that, unless we create opportunities for these youth, what could be a demographic, de demographic dividend will end up being a time bomb that we are not going to be able to control. And I think Dr. Abi's focus on the youth and how do we engage them more actively is something very positive for agriculture. And then the third area where a lot of emphasis has been brought on by these reforms is pastorals, communities, and lowland parts of the country. For the past 25 years, most of the agricultural development projects have been focused on the highland and have been focused on crops. But that's not all of Ethiopia. 40% of the land is actually in lowland areas of the country. We, have, we, we are proud to say that we have the largest livestock population in Africa and the 10th largest in the world, but it's not very productive. So we've got to think about how do we use these additional assets that we have kind of just let stagnate more effectively as we go forward. And I think these areas of inclusion are the types that Dr. Abbey and his reforms have been pushing, which I think are incredibly positive for the agricultural sector. And then lastly, when it comes to the ATA more specifically, I think the changes that Dr. Abbey has brought in place, which empowers and puts the responsibility of implementation on the ministries themselves, and says, you've got to deliver, and puts the ATA more closely aligned with the ministry, is a very positive 
move for the ATA. Because when the ministry is pressured to deliver, they're looking to us and say, what can you do? How can you help me deliver? And rather than being, and I remember Dr. Gitacho when I was talking to him, when he was at the World Food Program, I said, what do you think of the ATA? He said, you guys are like a speedboat going around this big tanker that's not moving very fast. And I thought, wow, that's actually a pretty good analogy. And now the way I think about us is that speedboat should be embedded within the tanker so it's actually pushing that tanker along rather than trying to pull it from outside. So I hope that the changes that have come, and I think some of the conversations that we've been having with the ministry and others, indeed point to this kind of change, where the ministry is looking to scale some of the work that we're doing, is looking to say, how do we engage more, more actively? So although one might not see the effects of these changes at this early stage, both the issue of private sector inclusiveness and more delivery requirements from line ministries, I think ultimately will bode really, really well for the agricultural sector. Now, the final thing, and I know I'm going a little bit probably over time, but what does this mean for other countries interested in the ATA model? What, what can they learn from this? And I think there's a few here. The first is to say that the model itself, I think we've proven there are specific features that are important in the transformation process. The four mandate areas I talked about, the studies, the implementation, implementation support through a delivery unit, the actual project implementation and coordination, all of those, I would argue, are important. However, I think there is a need to be flexible, a need to be contextualized for each country. But I don't think that any of these by themselves are sufficient. I think there's a sequencing that needs to happen, but you can do all the studies in the world, and if you can't implement it, what's the use? You can create great implementation capacity, but if you're just implementing random things, what's the use? You can fix the seed system in the soil, but if you don't integrate them together, what's the use? So I think there is a need for all of these different things. It's just a question of how do you put them together in a business model for a particular country and the political economy in that context to be able to be effective. The other is the capacity itself. Right? When I'm, what I mean by that is there is, and I'm sure Beth can talk to this and many others in the development community, there is literally hundreds of millions of dollars that we spend every year on building capacity, on training, on workshops. While those are useful, I would argue that there is a type of capacity that we're not building in agriculture, and I would argue actually across development, and that is implementation capacity. You can look at any training program that most of us have implemented, and there are very few that teach people how to do project management. Just because you're a great seed breeder, it doesn't mean that you can run a seed project. We build technical capacity, but don't build implementation capacity on just how do you execute a project. Similarly, we don't build analytical and problem-solving capacity. So the team that we built at the ATA that does the analytical work I think has been the backbone of the organization because it always allows us to use data and evidence in anything and everything that we do. If we didn't have that, 
we'd be shooting in the dark. We wouldn't be able to problem solve and course correct the work that we're doing in real time. So I would argue that that kind of problem solving analytical capacity is something that we need to build within the agricultural sector of other African countries as well. So they can solve their own problems. I mean, it's the classic teach a, teach a person to fish versus give somebody a fish. The same thing is the case when it comes to problem solving and analytical skills. We can tell people to implement this and implement that, but if they don't have the capacity to problem solve and fix those issues, that's never going to result in the impact that we're looking for. And then the final thing I'd say, and this is the area that we struggle with at the ATA all the time, is one of managing stakeholders and expectations. When you have a name like the Transformation Agency, the expectations are huge. I mean, people have said to me, there's still poverty in Ethiopia, thus you have failed. And I think to myself, well, that's not really fair. I mean, we're not responsible for alleviating poverty in the entire country. But people define transformation in different ways. So it's important to manage people's expectations as to what does transformation actually mean? And what is your responsibility in that process? It's also interesting that those that are often pushing for, for transformation and change are usually the ones least open to change themselves. Right? They want the change to happen, but when you say, here's what you need to do for that change to happen on your side, they say, whoa, hold on a second. Well, I'm talking about change everywhere else, not here. Right? So there's that kind of shared ownership of that change that you've got to sell. And it's all about us. Right? In Ethiopia, it's all about us in the agricultural sector that must change, including the ATA. And we've learned. And that's why we were open to the studies, because we realize we are not perfect. We will never be perfect, to be honest, because the world is dynamic. Things will always change, and we have to change with it. So for us as an organization, it's always about learning. It's always about doing better tomorrow. And I think that's the kind of mentality that we have to embed within the system itself. And we've been fortunate, and this is my last comment, we have been incredibly fortunate that the leadership in Ethiopia, as well as our development partners, especially the Gates Foundation, the Dutch Embassy, and the Danish Embassy, have given us the flexible funding that allows us to focus on KPIs and outputs, rather than activities. It's not about how many workshops that we have, we've run or how many people we've trained. What they're interested in is, what have you delivered at the end of the year? What you do during the year to get there, they're less interested in, and that's fine because it gives us that flexibility. The same thing with the government. They've said, I just want to see results. Whether you implement the project or somebody else implements it, don't care, as long as it gets done. And for us, that flexibility gives us the kind of business model that allows us to focus on the end result and worry, about, worry less about who does it and who gets the credit and more about what is the impact. So I hope that that brief, albeit not so brief, uh, set of comments gives you a sense of what we do at the ATA. And I really look forward to questions and comments and the discussion that follows. Thank you very much.
Good morning. My name is Christian Mann. I'm the research fellow in the Global Food Security Project here at CSIS. I'm a co-author on the report. And can I just say, I'm so pleased to be here with this awesome group of people. Thank you, Khalid, for your you know, your incisive comments, but also your candor. I mean, I think it's inspiring to hear from uh, a person such as yourself who's willing to say things like, hey, we've made some progress, but we're not perfect. That's really cool. Thanks. Um, this morning, we're going to uh, hear briefly in opening remarks from each of our panelists. Uh, after that, I'll moderate a discussion. And after that, we'll have some time for questions from the audience. So. You have the biographies of our panelists uh, in your handout, but I thought I'd just briefly introduce uh, them so we all sort of are on the same page. Uh, Beth Dunford is the USAID assistant to the administrator, and she's also, also the deputy coordinator for development of Feed the Future. And I recently learned that Beth is also a sociologist, such as myself. Our numbers are few. We have to stick together. So good to have you here, Beth. Um, Kitachu Jariba is an independent consultant in agricultural development. Um, he, he brings a, a career of experience in the field and uh, a lot of passion, too. So we're pleased to have you here, Dr. Kitachu. Uh, Sarah Bodiger is a senior advisor in the McKinsey Center for Agricultural Transformation. And we're quite new friends, Sarah, and it's just so nice to have you here. So thanks for bringing sort of a global perspective on transformation efforts. Um, so I'd like to start with Beth. And, and then move sort of this way towards me. Friendly reminder, you have about five minutes and I'll give you a look if you start going over. Go ahead, Beth. Thanks a lot. Um, thanks, Khaled, for um, your great words today. I think um, you've done so much with the ATA and um, it's just really amazing to come here to really talk about um, all of this progress and I really look forward to the discussion uh, to really delve into a lot of the topics that you raised. Uh, we, I think many of us here in the room have connections to Ethiopia. I see some familiar faces. Um, I started out um, my first tour as a Foreign Service Officer with USAID, was as a Food for Peace Officer in Ethiopia, it meant I was in charge of uh, emergency food distribution. I was there during um, one of the many drought uh, crises, this was 2002-2003, 14 million people were in need of food assistance. Um, at the time that was a lot, and uh, I was really proud to be part of the U.S. government's effort. We spent $5 million, $500 million to deliver food assistance and saved millions of lives. And it was a, a huge effort. And um, I think, as Kimberly mentioned earlier that year, the U.S. government spent $5 million on agricultural development. Um, our engagement with the government was very much with the all-powerful DPPC, Disaster Prevention Preparedness Commission. And that was really the most powerful body in the government. And then again, agricultural development, ag transformation was buried somewhere off here and was really not uh, the focus of our high-level engagement with the government. So fast forward um, to now, and you see that uh, there's been so much progress, so much leadership on the part of Ethiopia. Khalid spoke very eloquently about the ATA and its role. Uh, we in the U.S. government, um, for the past decade, uh, we have stood up Feed the Future, where we've really increased our investment in agricultural development. And Ethiopia is one of the core countries um, that we're investing in, um, in partnership and support of, of the government. Um, I think uh, really agricultural transformation in Ethiopia is a really important example and uh, model of the administ Administrator Green's um, journey to self-reliance. Again, this is not the agenda that Administrator Green has set out for USAID. It's what I call our North Star that really guides everything that we do. Um, really 
focusing on the fact that the purpose of foreign assistance is to end its needs to existence. So what that means is that we need to be supporting country government to advance their own agenda to, um, to take forward ag transformation. Um, the administrator's first trip to the field uh, included a, a, a stop in Ethiopia. I was able to accompany him on this trip. We went to the lowlands of Ethiopia. We visited a slaughterhouse. And again, this type of leadership on the part of the government to put infrastructure in place, right, policies in place, to really focus on investment in these areas once forgotten as these areas of sort of humanitarian assistance wastelands. I mean, really changing how we see these areas as places where there is the potential for livelihoods to thrive, where we see livestock as a real economic driver and an opportunity for livelihoods. Uh, is, was, is such a shift from when I had been there um, in my early days as, as a first tour officer. We saw um, uh, the slaughterhouse as a real hub for economic, uh, economic opportunity, um, opportunities for um, employment and youth to get engaged, um, a real, um, uh, you saw the development of markets which provided very important resilience in times of shock where um, farmers could move their animals. And again, this is all um, with government leadership for investment, but a real focus on private sector uh, development that's going to be taking this agenda forward. Um, so again, coming back to the role of country leadership and country ownership uh, takes us back to um, uh, the reason, one of the key reasons that Ethiopia has been successful. Our deputy administrator, uh, Bonnie Glick, was just in Ethiopia and signed a declaration of partnership, a, a Feed the Future declaration of partnership with the government of Ethiopia, which really lays out our shared commitment to both invest in this sector and um, really that we see modernizing agriculture, we see supporting modernizing agriculture as part of the government's uh, new horizon of hope reform agenda as critical, and again, we're there to support the government leadership um, in this effort. Um, as we go forward, uh, we will be measuring our development success, not only on development outcomes that we all know, poverty, um, stunting, which we think is really, really important, but also on the capacity and commitment of governments to take this agenda forward. I think uh, relating to a lot of the comments that Khaled made, uh, are the does the government have the right commitment to the effort, uh, putting the right resources in, putting the right policies in place, and is there capacity to deliver on the agenda? It also includes capacity of the private sector to really engage um, as partners and as drivers of this transformation, including NGOs, research organizations, and the rest. So again, that measuring that outcome, I think, will really help focus our efforts um, to, um, uh, to advance this transformation. Um, just in opening up uh, questions for, uh, that I hope we can answer for the panel, um, we've talked a lot about the private sector and want to get a little bit more here from you, Khaled, on how you intend to sort of facilitate and build the capacity of the private sector to take on more of a leadership role in this transformation and also recognizing um, the importance of driving this transformation in areas of recurrent humanitarian crisis. How will the ATA be engaging with uh, newly formed Ministry of Peace, et cetera, et cetera, that will be taking on that agenda in, in some of these areas of recurrent humanitarian crisis. Uh, delighted to be here today. Thank you so much for the report and looking forward to hearing from the other panelists as well. Good morning, and perhaps for those listening online from Ethiopia, good afternoon. Um, Khalid and Beth made my work far more easier 
they have introduced uh, a, a bigger agenda. So I will focus on the content of the, the report so that we can discuss the, the transformation agenda. So I'll focus on um, ATA as a vision, as a concept, as an idea in Ethiopia, which is widely recognized, really, that our research came across. So um, and not only ATA, but I think the subtitle to this is Agricultural Transformation Council, which is a commitment that the government of Ethiopia has made at the political level to liberate changes at that level. So I think ATA as a concept, as a vision, as an action, as a political process is a very unique one. As a way to introduce um, the report, some of the key and salient features, um, let me mention a couple of watershed moments in Ethiopia. Agricultural transformation is not just a luxury for Ethiopia. It is an existential action that needs to happen now, in fact, yesterday. Uh, one is the 1960s, when Ethiopia's population was only 24 million. Its natural resources were largely unaffected by population pressure. Although Ethiopia was poorer then as it is today, no one was on welfare assistance on the scale that we know today. People could get by whatever conditions of life presented them, excluding epidemics and droughts that were havocing uh, at the time. As we speak today, inter well, at the time, international development were also focused on institution building under the auspices of modernization and integrated rural and agricultural development. The flagship introductions of USAID's investment in agricultural institutions under point four program are notable. And I actually happen to be a graduate from one of those universities and an institution that USAID built at the time. And these were Haramea, Jimma, and Ambo. Today they are the prominent and premier institutions of agricultural development in Ethiopia. Uh, during the 1960s, Ethiopia would have had pursued a golden opportunity to transform agriculture without the constraint of time and political pressure the country is faced with today. As we speak today, Ethiopia's population has quadrupled. I think we are about 100 million. We are not too sure, but around that. And some 19 million people are on welfare assistance of varied and different magnitude. 25 million people are below the poverty line. In fact, a far greater number will be unable to make it to the next season if crop fails or pasture deteriorate rapidly. So this is what underpins this study and what makes it very timely. So the two time scales that I presented to you set the scene, the urgency, the scale of food and nutrition problems in Ethiopia, not to mention the political ramification. It is in this context that the CSIS study is very timely and, and very much focused with the change that is happening in Ethiopia. So three things I want to highlight for discussion in introducing the report. First, as the report points out, ATA must build a bigger tent, double down on innovation, and scrutinize the pivot to implementation. 
Ethiopia must act urgently and decisively to transform this traditional agriculture, which is the occupation of most of its people. I think about 80 or 85% of the population are engaged in agriculture. So it's not a small number to reckon with. Unlike international debt, hunger and poverty cannot be rescheduled or can be defaulted. The consequences are significant and massive, not only for Ethiopians, but regionally and internationally. So when we say ATA must build a bigger tent and what earlier uh, Khalid referred to the speedboat, it's not a diminishing of ATA's work. In fact, ATA has done a wonderful job, but the question is how to scale and how to bring everybody on board that platform. Second, the scale of Ethiopia's existential challenge is so huge that a single organization, no matter how efficient it may be, is not a match to the daunting task of transforming the vastly traditional agricultural system. Khalid referred to earlier on 17 million, 17.5 million households are smallholder agriculture, less than a hectare to survive on. So the, the, the report that you see in front of you or you have read refers to this. The, this is the essence of recommendation that we have put in the report, that co-create transformation agenda deliverable with the Ministry of Agriculture that tackle challenges within the ministry itself and bring many more actors on board the transformation platform. So many more actors are needed. Third, it is important also to note that Ethiopia's international partners, as I mentioned earlier, have been very generous and relenting in their commitment to Ethiopia's assistance. As I said, especially the USAID and the investment in that has been very impactful. In moving forward, it's not just the money that we need from donors to continue to support ATA and many type of assistance, including the life-saving type activities, but it is also beyond the money that a new way of supporting, and as we put it in the report, centers of excellence to advance the goal of country-led development work is also needed to finance. In conclusion, I just want to add one subtext to, do, to this. Ethiopia cannot afford to delay transformation. For Ethiopia, it is a critical factor, as I mentioned earlier on. Agricultural transformation is not a linear process. It involves technical as much as social change, a political commitment that are pragmatic, flexible, adjustable each step of the way, and avoids dogmatic stance. In a new spirit of dialogue and partnership between donors and Ethiopia, it is important to work towards removing obstacles to real transformation in agriculture, the principal ones being land consolidation, input supply, access to technologies, rural and credit financial supply systems, and the rural infrastructure at the most basic level. Crucially, we should not underestimate the wisdom of the commitment to innovation of Ethiopian farmers. I think at the bottom of the, the scale is that the farmers at, 
are at the transformation. We have, who have endured throughout the millennia. They have domesticated crops and animals adapted to different agroecological zones, bred animals selected best suited crops to local conditions. Given an opportunity and access to innovation, Ethiopian farmers strive to solve basic economic problems, production, distribution, and investment to create wells. In the final analysis, agricultural transformation can only happen if farmers become part of the drivers of transformation. Thank you. Thanks, it's great to be here. Uh, I thought I would contribute a few broader reflections uh, since we have such deep expertise on Ethiopia. So I'm going to uh, talk about um, lessons we've learned from other countries. Now we have a really deep body of knowledge around how agricultural transformation works. We're still learning a lot, uh, but uh, but we also have a body of uh, of knowledge around the institutions involved like the Transformation Agency. And that's what I'd like to just talk about for a little bit. Um, you, it helps at this point to sort of step back just from the agriculture sector and look more broadly at the institutions that governments design to drive transformation writ large. And these include uh, delivery units, um, PMOs, transformation agencies, sometimes a sort of restructuring of ministries. There's lots of ways that people have done it. Uh, but there are... Uh, common mandates, and, and the mandates that Khalid uh, talked about are, are throughout these, uh, the, these organizations. Just as an example of how many we now have to study, if you look back to um, 2010 when uh, ATA was founded, in that decade we uh, saw presidential delivery units in, uh, created in Sierra Leone, um, Senegal, Tanzania, Uganda, Kenya, um, Ghana, Rwanda, Liberia, South Africa. So that's just on the African continent. It was an era where uh, the world was sort of enamored with develop, uh, delivery units. Um, but the point is that, that we've learned a lot. And what I thought I would do is give you uh, very fast, before I get the evil eye from Christian, uh, <laughs> the top five lessons that I think we've learned. So number one is talent. Talent is at the core of success, um, and it's not easy. Uh, this is not, uh, the talent that is needed to drive transformation is not uh, your business as usual. And, and we tend to take it from the technical side, we tend to take it from a different set of training, but it's a different kind of talent. So building that talent, hiring the right people, building it in the transformation organization, but also building it in the line ministries is a tough job, but the, the, the biggest that we've found in terms of success. The second is uh, the second lesson is around um, the level of political backing. So, so clearly, political commitment is needed at the very highest level. But there's another piece to that, and and it's about um, cross ministerial functioning, um, which is which is really true in agricultural transformation. If you think about um, the drivers of ag transformation and, and some of the constraints, many of them are outside the remit of the Ministry of Agriculture. Think about trade or, or foreign exchange constraints or um, infrastructure. So, so this ability to work across ministries, to, to problem solve across ministries, um, and to communicate uh, really well is critical in one way that you can solve that, um, and I would argue at the start of these units, super important to have them at the presidential or the prime ministerial level. 
Um, as, as that changes, I think there are, uh, you know, questions about coming back to the functionalities of what you really need in the structure. Uh, but to start, it certainly helps to have that high, very high-level backing. Um, that brings me to lesson number three, what happens when administrations change. Um, we work a lot on uh, kind of proofing programs and, and, uh, and projects to try to be able to survive administration changes in, in governments. But I think the point here is, is, is a slightly different one. Um, it's about uh, reviewing. Uh, so so you, don't, you don't want the agency to keep going. You actually want the drivers of the transformation to keep going. So then the question becomes, in this new political climate, in this new point in the transformation, is this the right agency and is this the right, uh, and so it's a sort of review process that we've found um, is uh, super important in the success. And that kind of learning organization piece of, of really taking on that external, it's not the governance of the agency that's doing this, it's gotta be an external kind of a communication. Um, the fourth one is about landing the transformation agenda locally. And we also heard a little bit about this uh, from Khalid. But, but it turns out that uh, that sort of co-creation between local government and national government uh, is, a, is a really important part. Uh, the second piece of it is also uh, just public engagement of actually really good communication strategies in these agencies to make sure that you are both listening uh, at, to, to, to regular people as well as communicating the agenda to them. Um, so I think that, that kind of uh, sense that, that, yes, designing a transformation agency is, is a, is a top-down by its nature, it's top-down, but unless you also have a sort of bottom-up component, um, it, it's not going to be as successful. And the last one um, is around data and making uh, data publicly available. And our work has shown uh, that um, the kinds of, uh, of processes and, and um, policies that you start to, to lay down when you move down that road of publicly available data is incredibly powerful to, to actually drive the transformation. Uh, so, so you think about public engagement with the new data that's out there. It makes a huge shift. You think, of course, about government accountability uh, that, that shifts. And those, those forces tend to leave uh, a, a legacy that is much more powerful uh, than, than you might think about a, a particular data policy. Uh, so those are the top five um, in terms of lessons of, uh, of, of looking across a pretty wide range of these kinds of transformation agencies. But I, I think you'll hear from, uh, from the panel and from, from the audience that, that uh, you can hear small pieces of this in a lot of the work that ATA has done. Great. Thanks, everyone. I'd like to start with a question for Khalid. And this is admittedly not an easy question. But what would you say is ATA's exit strategy over the course of the next X years? It's actually not too difficult a question, to be honest, um, because we, we do have an exit strategy in all the work that we do. Uh, as I mentioned, every project that ATA does begins with an exit strategy. We don't even take a project on without an exit strategy. Similarly, the delivery unit, the team that we put into the Ministry of Agriculture, their whole work is about embedding that work within the ministry itself. And, and I would actually uh, second Sarah's point when it comes to the review process. The ATA itself undergoes 
an external review every five years at the beginning of each five-year development plan of the governments. And we're going to go through one next year. And at that point, the government itself will say, here's what I want ATA to do more of, and here's what I want ATA to do less of. So there, there is a built-in review process. And in the design of the organization itself, we've always envisioned this would be a 20 to 30-year journey. So we're in year 10 of a 30-year journey. And every five years, and we, we have almost a plan. The first five years was the initiation phase. The next three five-year blocks are full implementation phase. And the final five years is the transition phase. And if you look at transformation organizations in other parts of the world, especially the ones that we really studied deeply in the design of the ATA in Asia, they all transformed into something else. Because once you've created an effective organization, it would be a little bit foolish just to disband it. Right? So they all became something else. Some of them actually became a ministry in and of their own right. Others were split up and put into other ministries as the kind of speedboat analogy where you embed pieces of an organization into another organization and transform that one. So we don't know what is going to become of the ATA in that final five-year transition phase, but there will be a transition phase, and my recommendation would be take up bits and pieces of it and put them in other places and do other good work. Because while the transformation of the agricultural sector might be transformed by that phase, there are plenty of other work to do. And if you've got an effective organization, use it, leverage it. Don't just shut it down. So this question is for the group. Imagine for a moment that this group of panelists was tasked with standing up a new ATA somewhere in, say, Central America or Latin America. But there's no political will in the country. It's none to speak of, at least. It's a, it's a relatively passive political scenario. What is one piece of advice you'd give the prime minister or the head of state who wanted to know, how do we build political will? You can, uh, Gatachi, why don't you go first? God forbid, I hope that uh, the prime minister would uh, agree to uh, take on the um, agenda of transforming the agricultural sector. David Nielsen and I uh, go back a while in 2008, we were dealing with global food crisis at the time, a number of colleagues. So as I said, uh, the convincing, the art of convincing transforming agriculture is not too difficult. I don't think that nations can close down their door to innovation, to changing, to creating an institution and changing their culture. So I think while global food equation may be sufficient at the present time, at least as we know, for trade and, and distribution, but nations must strive to uh, make it happen. So my pitch would come from the existential side. For some of you who may remember, in 2008, uh, many countries closed their trading borders. About 30 or so, David, if you remember that, were, were really struggling to open the door, to open uh, strategic stocks to global trade. So uh, I think this is very, very crucial. Second, as I see it from Ethiopia, 
the global welfare assistance that Ethiopia is a recipient of, for example, is huge. Is, it cannot be sustainable for international system, nor for Ethiopia. So um, I think it is important that the political system become aware of it and be able to pro produce sufficiently the agricultural sector. Third and final point, I think that it is important that the industrialization, the urbanization scheme cannot happen without transforming the agricultural sector because the food equation cuts across the industrial sector on the labor and the efficiency and the ability to um, absorb the surplus labor in the agriculture into the industrial and the urban sector. So I think there are many uh, convincing arguments that can be made. The key factor, as Khalid pointed out, is that it is the culture that has to change, that yes, ATA was a speedboat to run around to entice the big boat to turn around, but that big boat has to turn. That's what I call an institutional and a cultural change that should happen. I just want to, I think that I would reframe the question slightly rather than what would I would say to the president. I think that I would start working with partners that we have to say what are the foundations that we can create to be ready for um, a change in that political will. Of course, you would always engage with the leader, but what, what, are the, what are the foundations that you need to create so that when that change does happen, that you're able to really take off? And one of the key pieces, I think, is something that Khalid mentioned and Sarah also mentioned, is really making sure that there's a system to provide accurate data on the agricultural system, and then there's the capacity to analyze that data. That does wonders so much to really have uh, evidence-based decision-making be possible. And also, uh, we talk a lot about policy change. If you don't have the right data, the right analytical tools to understand what it means when you shut down your border, have your own data with your own countries, with leaders and scholars that you trust within your own country to help you understand what it means if you shut the border down, rather than outsiders coming in and tell you what well, our data says what you're doing is wrong. Uh, really just to build up that country-owned, country-led system to have your own data and analyze it is really, really important. One thing that we're doing in collaboration with Gates Foundation, FAO, and others is working on a, um, an initiative to develop countries' own ability to collect data, to kind of have the agricultural uh, DHS, some of you who work in the health sector know that demographic and health surveys uh, provides, you know, just excellent data that's comparable across, across countries that all countries have. And how do we get that type of data um, across countries in the ag sector? Um, that's really important. And then building uh, that analytical capacity in country. Yeah, I, I think it's a really relevant question. I, I think we have to do this. We, we can't sit back and wait for, you know, political commitment to pop its head up. And, and I think planning for when that political commitment shifts, um, understanding operating with partners uh, in the country. Uh, but, I, but I also think it's important to remember that um, there's a lot of drivers of agricultural transformation that aren't top-down. So, so if you had been in... Um, uh, Tanzania is the best example uh, where you know I, I went, didn't go for a few years, came back and the proliferation of cheap uh, motorbikes from China had 
completely transformed the ag systems <laughs> because people were getting fertilizer, they were taking stuff to market in different ways, uh, just because the price of those had, had come down. Uh, obviously, cell phones, another. So, so there, are, you know, there are a lot of different pieces, and I, I guess part of the advice would be, you know, find where are, from what we know, find where are, there are some really uh, easier catalysts to start these engines rolling, uh, and don't wait for the giant political umbrella to align itself. This question is for Beth. Um, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, uh, Khaled in his remarks noted that some of their partners had uh, sort of taken a focus on KPIs or outcomes. What would it take for Feed the Future or USAID to focus more on outcomes and be somewhat more agnostic about the routes that its uh, recipients take to deliver those outcomes? So I, I do think USAID is consider is um, considers outcomes, and uh, outcomes are very very important in how we deliver assistance. I think that every um, project that we engage in, every partnership that we engage in, has a series of outcomes that we measure ourselves and the success of the project about. So I think that uh, we are open and willing, uh, and we place a great importance on that. So we would agree um, that basically, if a product doesn't produce results that we're not going to be funding it. And so that's the center of what we look at. Um, Sarah, I'm going to put you on the spot. I was wondering if you could pose a question to Khaled that maybe uh, popped up in your mind during his remarks. <laughs> uh, I, I think it would have to be around talent. I mean, you, you spoke uh, a lot about kind of the challenges, but I'm just curious. It's such a hard question, um, particularly now that the speedboat is, is within the tanker, you know, so to speak. Um, what's the plan? Uh, and, and, you know, strategically, what are you targeting first? I'd just love to hear a little more about how you're building talent. So that, that's really an interesting question and one where I've got a, uh, an anecdote that might, that might help. We've realized that when we build talent within the ATA, will lose that talent. So our analyst team, for example, we hire 12 analysts every year, 12 to 16. We have 4,000 applications, anywhere between three and 4,000 applications for 12 to 16 positions. After three years, we lose almost all of them. So I actually went to the prime minister and complained, and I said, what do I do? And he, he asked me, where do these people go? I said, well, they actually get hired by other organizations, especially the private sector. And he said, fantastic, hire more. It's okay if you lose them, because ultimately, they're working in the sector, in the country, you're building talent for the country. So I worry now a little bit less about the talent that I lose, so long as it stays in the country. If it stays in the country, it will ultimately benefit the country and the sector. So we are resigned to the fact that we will lose them because the private sector will pay them a lot more. GE, I mean, I had the country director of GE say to me, why should I spend money hiring somebody when I can just hire them from you? <laughs> and I was furious, but then what could I do? Because he's going to pay them not just 5% or 10% more, but 100% more, and I can't complain. So what I say to my staff is, please stay three years. Give us three years. We will train you, we will give you opportunities to grow, and by the time you leave in three years, you will be in a much better place than if you leave after one year or two years. 
So for us, we are a talent development organization rather than a talent retention organization now. So we have about 10 minutes left. I'd like to open up the uh, room for questions. So I'm going to take questions in groups of three. Please comments, uh, questions, not comments. <laughs> uh, so raise your hand and we'll bring the microphone to you. So um, here and here and Tony. Hi. Um, thank you very much. First of all, I appreciate um, uh, all of the, the comments uh, of the panel today, really an, an engaging conversation. Uh, my name is Dave Rosenblum, and I work with a company called Development Finance International. Um, and uh, Mr. Bamba, uh, your comments on the ATA embracing kind of broader strategies of the Ethiopian government really struck me. I was hoping you might be able to comment um, particularly on the industrialization strategy in the industrial parks, particularly the agro-industrial parks, and how you're supporting this initiative um, and improving the transformation from, from agriculture to agribusiness. Larry Schaefer with uh, Schaefer Global. And what's the appetite for the different organizations and Ethiopia in general for indoor agriculture, controlled environment agriculture, all of those catchphrases for development, for commercialization, for expansion, and for capacity building? Tony. Tony Carroll, I teach at SICE and I was an advisor to Diageo and the acquisition of Meta. Um, with the future liberalization, if not privatization, of telecoms and banking, what will that do to empower small farmers? Because uh, credit is a, is a constraint in agricultural development in Ethiopia. And I'm wondering whether the combination of new technology in terms of delivering credit and the willingness to take on agricultural risk at a, at a, at a more uh, meaningful level uh, could also be a transformational uh, factor in Ethiopia's agricultural uh, development. Thank you. Anyone's feel, to, feel free to jump in. Let me try to quickly speak to each of these. In terms of the industrial park strategy, absolutely, that is something that Ethiopia has to do. Um, and as Dr. Gitacho mentioned, however, agriculture is the backbone of the country. And if you look at the development strategy of nearly any country in the world outside of Hong Kong and Singapore, that industrialization process has begun with agricultural industrialization, right? Uh, Agro-processing and, and so on and, and, and so forth. The agro-industrial parks, and more specifically in Ethiopia, are the second pillar of our business plan or our, our business model, the commercialization clusters actually feed into the agro-industrial parks. So the commodities that the farmers are producing in those clusters are the commodities that have been prioritized in the agro-industrial parks. So there's a direct linkage between the two. Um, we've actually been working quite closely with uh, USAID, FinTrack, um, and other partners to make sure that the value chain work that's being done across the country is fully aligned to meet the, the uh, specifications of, uh, of those parks. When it comes to um, indoor uh, urban agriculture, that's an area that Ethiopia has not focused on in the past just because... Fair. Um, we haven't focused on that to be honest. Um, but it is an area that we should be looking at. As, as Dr. Gitacho mentioned, again, we are open to any and all innovations that address those three primary things, right? Uh, 17 million farmers, national food security, and how do we produce enough commodities to um, 
uh, accelerate that industrialization process. To the, to, so to the extent that uh, indoor um, agriculture can be a part of that solution space, we're very much open to that. And to the extent that uh, you've got a card afterward, uh, please, uh, let, let's talk. And then in terms of liberalization of the telecom and banking sector, I think you're, you're absolutely right. There is um, a bit of a trade-off that we've got to think about. The technology that the liberalization process can bring about is indeed a net positive for smallholder farmers. Uh, as Sarah mentioned, you know, there are these kind of externalities that you see that you might not sometimes expect, like motorbikes coming into Tanzania and all of a sudden your ag sector is more dynamic. So I would expect the same thing to happen, especially in the financial sector. I would have to, however, give a call out to my colleagues at uh, Ethio Telecom, who have been a big partner in the ATA's uh, 8028 Farmer Hotline because they've provided toll-free services to our smallholder farmers to be able to call in for the, um, on the hotline. And as a result, in three years, we have signed up four million farmers, which is far more than any other farmer hotline anywhere in Africa. And that could not have been possible without Ethio Telecom making it toll-free. So to the extent that the Ethio Telecom gets, uh, gets privatized or any changes there, I hope any new partner will continue to honor that uh, toll-free uh, status for our farmers. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, pile in on the um, telecoms and banking. Um, absolutely, it's, it's one of those huge catalysts uh, for ag transformation. It matters um, incredibly how it's done, uh, and, and Ethiopia is in a position to watch and, and having learned from a lot of the successes that have, we've seen around the world. Uh, so what, what that framework is set up. But, um, but I also wanted to add on a, a maybe not so intuitive point, um, because we haven't talked about women yet at all on our panel. <laughs> Um, and uh, getting financial services to uh, rural women, uh, getting uh, even cell phone service to rural women, I think, again, it's, it matters how you do it. So, so being able to learn from a lot of the financial products we've got out there now, which is um, just a really interesting area where we actually design financial products for women in rural households, um, I think is a really important part. And, and actually throughout all of this, um, you know, it would be great to, uh, to sort of revisit some of the pieces we talked about uh, through the lens of, um, of particularly, you know, what, what happens to women in agricultural transformation. Um, we talk a lot about gender equality or whether women farmers get the same fertilizer as men, but, but as uh, Ethiopia has been such a pioneer uh, recently in terms of, of women, um, you know, great agenda to ask. As rural households transform and, and move into, and into different uh, lines of work, what happens to the women? So I look forward to that conversation. Okay, let's quickly take three more questions. Are there any women that have questions? <laughs> Is that Julie? Okay, so Julie, and then this individual here. Go ahead, Julie. Great. Hi, Julie Howard. I'm a senior advisor here at CSIS. I want to ask about ATA and the approach in more conflict and fragile uh, regions of Somalia and of the Somali regions, for example. I don't know if you're working in any of those Waredas. How does it look different? I mean, do you work more with youth? What is the approach to local governance? What, what's the, the emphasis on building community relationships? How, how does it differ? Thanks. So let's actually just do one more question from the person in the front here. All the way in the front. Then we'll go back to you, Peter. 
right here. Uh, thank you. Hi, I, um, I really appreciate you bringing up uh, how these uh, things are affecting women and uh, would also like to shine a light on other populations that are relatively vulnerable or marginalized compared to others. Uh, we talked about the private sector being a huge catalyst for change, uh, but we also know that the private sector having profit motives uh, doesn't always uh, sometimes benefit vulnerable or marginalized populations equally. So I'm wondering, uh, especially as we kind of have more funding and more focus going in that area, uh, what implementers or policymakers or um, the private sector itself can do to make sure that people are benefiting equally and we're not leaving anybody behind in these transformations. And then let's quickly let Peter ask a question then we'll turn it back to the panel. I have a, I'm Peter Boone from Palladium. I have a question that's a little bit related to yours, but it's sort of from the flip side. Um, we talked a lot about speedboats and catalysts sort of um, from the ATA side. I was wondering, um, really, where are the speedboats and catalysts on the, in the agricultural ecosystem? And is, it, and is the smallholder farm going to be the unit that really transforms Ethiopia's agriculture and doubles yields and increases productivity and brings irrigation, or is it going to come more from commercial farms? And coming back to her point, we've got 17 million smallholders, so if, the other, if larger farms which, um, and commercial farms and off-takers are the engines of growth in the agricultural sector, how do you integrate the smallholders into that system? Not Excellent easy. questions. Thanks, everyone. Okay, so let's let's offer maybe 30-second answers to each of those questions because uh, we're almost at time. Right. So, uh, Julie, to, to your question, unfortunately, ATA has not historically worked in conflict areas and marginalized areas of the country, but that's what we're moving towards in the in the coming year. So. Um, let me jump the private sector one because I'm sure my colleagues will talk about that and talk about the smallholder farmers because, you know, there is a misconception that smallholder farmers can't be commercialized or that the uh, land size by itself is going to be prohibitive to get to economies of scale. We've actually piloted last year, and only in Ethiopia do, a, do you pilot at a scale of 500,000 farmers, but we piloted the consolidation of farmers in what we call farmer production clusters where farmers continue to work their own land, but work together in a cluster format. And we've seen yield increases of a minimum of 20% just because they start sharing information much more actively and creating the economies of scale for mechanization to happen as well as for joint marketing. And this year, we're uh, planning to work with 1.6 million farmers, just as ATA running that project within the clusters. And then the Ministry of Agriculture is doing the same thing outside of those clusters. So I think this could be a really innovative way to create almost a commercial farm with smallholder farmer ownership. Now, I think that would be a really interesting model for Africa to explore rather than thinking it's either commercial farms on one side and smallholder farmers on the other. Instead, it's smallholder farmers who run commercial farms as equity holders, because that's what we're thinking of these clusters, is that they ultimately get registered as commercial farms, as private sector commercial farms. And we have a five-year horizon of how to get them there, including this year training four people from each cluster. 
the manager, the deputy responsible for marketing, a third person responsible for agronomy, and a fourth person responsible for finance. And you must have a minimum of one of those four people as a woman to be registered, to be eligible for registration. Otherwise, we won't even register you and provide the training. So this is a different model, and it's one of these kinds of things where I'd say watch this space, because if this works, then it really could be transformational. Okay, we're at time, but I'm gonna give Sarah the last word. I just, no, no, I just wanted to yeah, echo sorry, that. Um, one of the things that happens when, um, uh, when you introduce in irrigation is that farmers become more professionalized because it's no longer a rain-fed, uh, highly risky endeavor where you have to have multiple jobs in your rural household and the farming is one piece of it. Um, so I, I think that's the difference. It's not the size of the farm, it's how professionalized farmers become. And I think irrigation is a, is a big piece of that. So thanks everyone for coming. Let's please give a round of applause to our participants. Make sure you grab a report on the way out. Have a good day. Thank you.